We're in a series this summer. We're talking about the good life. We're taking a couple chapters from the middle part of James. He talks about the good life as comprised of deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And then what James does is identifies influences that lead us toward the good life or away from it. And last week, he took aim at the rich. And in those days, most of the individuals that he's writing to are Jewish Christians interspersed through the Roman Empire. Uh, They are not well off when they were forced out of Jerusalem. They lost their neighborhood and their livelihood. And as such, many of them had to deal with menial marginal jobs. And what James does, he confronts the rich, those wealthy landowners who tended to defraud their workers of wages. And what he ended up saying to them, your wealth is going, your judgment is coming. And he ends up saying, commence weeping, because it's the time of them being high on the horse is very short, seen from the perspective of eternity. And then he turns, James turns his attention back to the poor, and he doesn't give them a lot of time to gloat. And his words for them are both encouraging and direct. Let's see what he says in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. It's in your worship folder, I'll read. He says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I need to define a couple words. When it says be patient there, The word literally is be long-suffering, be long-suffering. So the patience it's talking about, it's not an easy chair patience. It's the kind of chair with the thing sticking in your back kind of patience. It's, It's sitting in a place that you don't want to be. It's not a comfortable place. It's an uncomfortable place. And these people James is addressing, they are the poor, and they are in an uncomfortable place. And what he tells them be long-suffering. Be long-suffering. Um, says, again, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. How patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. What he's telling them to do is something very challenging. And we're going to try to talk about both what this is and how we do it. He's going to encourage them to develop a capacity to live with tension. Develop a capacity to live without having what they want. Now, he doesn't. He does take aim at the rich, but then he doesn't tell the community to practice communistic kind of Ideas, which might be okay, but what he does, he understands that the poor are probably going to stay poor. And what he tells them to do is be long-suffering. You're going to remain in a place that you don't want to be. 
and he's going to encourage them to develop an ability to live with tension. He says, don't grumble against each other. And he talks about one of the things that evidences the want of a capacity for long-suffering. He's saying, don't grumble against each other. To be long-suffering is associated with not grumbling. Now, there is a long-suffering that is, you know, there was a cartoon where this dog, if you remember, I forget the dog's name, and it was prism, 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 and that's what this dog always did, and he was always grumbling about this, that, and the other, how he was treated, prism, prism, and what he ends up, what he's saying to the people is that in terms of being long-suffering, the flip side of that is that you don't grumble. Again, some people, they get along by grumbling. They get energy from it. But what James says, to be long-suffering in the way he wants them to be is, is not to give in to grumbling and complaining about someone or something. We find the same directives in Paul's writing. He writes, I have learned the secret, Paul says, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. If you look at that last statement, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, that certainly is associated with the good life. The sky's the limit. Nothing is impossible, except when you look at what he's saying there. When he's saying the sky is the limit, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, it's not saying that the sky's the limit, because frankly, in the case of those to whom James is writing, the sky is not the limit. The chances are they're going to spend their lives working in a menial job, and they're going to need to hang in there while this world passes them by. Would you agree with me? There's a contentment that comes from being able to have what you want. We associate that with the good life. The contentment James is speaking of is a different kind of contentment. It's a contentment that's in place when you don't have what you want. Now that is a rare and remarkable form of contentment. Not the contentment based on having your life line up, but a contentment that exists even though your life is not lining up and is painful. But you find a capacity to continue to trust God and to evidence that trust in not grumbling about someone who is standing in the way of a more popular identification of what the good life is. It says, I can do everything through gives me through him who gives me strength. And so what it so what he's saying there is not is God helps me. He's developed the capacity to learn to live without. To learn to live without. Um, he goes on, and Paul says the same thing. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, and a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. So this is what God asks of us. He asks of us to be long-suffering, to remain in places that we probably don't want to remain, and to try to resist the urge to go prism, 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 prism against people, against those who stand in the way. Would you agree with me 
That's a tall order. And let me tell you why it's even taller. Because it says, do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? And what that verse is saying is that we have a built-in longing to assign blame. Okay, get this now. We're asked to be long-suffering, to not grumble. But the thing that is deep within us is this desire, this longing to assign blame. The spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. We don't need to try to assign blame. It's natural. If we don't have what we want and if we don't do what we want, there's a natural tendency that we have to blame. And we can point the finger in two directions. We can point the finger out. And we can say it's their fault. It's their fault I don't have what I want and hold other people accountable. Or we can... um, point the finger inwards, and we can blame ourselves. So here's the question. How are we to move towards long-suffering and away from blaming if blaming is a knee-jerk reaction? You understand? Blaming is a knee-jerk reaction. How in the world are we supposed to honor requests like this, to live without having what we want? We can't do what we want. We can't go where we want. And how are we supposed to fight the natural tendency to point the finger outward or point the finger inward? The thing I like about the Bible, it does give us very challenging what's. Very challenging what. And if you're hearing what James is saying, this is a very, very challenging what. But fortunately, the Bible does give us a how. Good question, though. How do we live with unmet needs and unfulfilled desires? How do we do long-suffering when intense envy bubbles up within us like a volcano? How do we do that? When we deal with desires, three approaches are common. When we have desires, when you want something, what do you want? might be a desire as far as a social desire or an intellectual desire a vocational desire, a relational desire. What do you want? When you have a desire, there's basically three things you can do to satisfy it. And you move your life in the direction to be able to get what you want. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You satisfy it. The problem is life doesn't always work out in a way that allows our desires to line up with what we want. So satisfying doesn't work. So Some of us then, when we can't satisfy it, we silence it. And so if I don't have the possibility of fulfilling a desire, I just won't want it. Shut up. You don't want that. I don't want that. And we we try to take our desires and pretend that they don't exist. You know, so we kind of put them in this place in our life that we we say, oh, no. And some of us, are we, we tell ourselves things like, it doesn't matter. And we try to shush that part of ourselves. We can satisfy or silence. You know, the only problem with silencing a desire is that it's very difficult to do. It comes out sideways. It comes out in our dreams. Satisfy silence. If you can't do those things, what else you can do? Submerge it. Submerge the desire. So I'm not as aware of frustrated desires if I am preoccupied with alcohol, or with drugs, or 
with money or with religion. Sometimes if we kind of dealing with desires rather than being honest of our, our desires, we run to church to try to get a fix. And churches can be places that encourage us. You don't really want that. You should do. What churches can say, God will satisfy all your desires. Have you heard that? God will satisfy all your desires this side of eternity? How many of you have heard that? I don't find that here. Would you agree with me? Do we have to be long-suffering if God's going to satisfy all our desires? I'm going to ask you a question. Do we need to be long-suffering if God is committed to fulfilling all our desires? The answer is... I switched the question, didn't I? You're saying yes, and I'm saying no, that's wrong. No, so here's the deal. We have to be long-suffering because God will not fulfill our desires. Is that correct? Yes, thank you very much. Okay, you answered right. Okay, I, I asked wrong. There's one more approach. If we're going to be long-suffering, we've got to develop another strategy other than satisfy, silence, or submerge. Those things don't work with long-suffering. Soothe. Soothe. Um, to be long-suffering requires that we soothe desires. How do we do that? How do we do that? Desires are insistent. Would you agree with me? Desires are loud. You ever listen to TV? You listen to a movie? And if you're like me, you strain to hear some things like that. Except when the commercials come on. So it's like this little whisper of a thing, and you just go in like this, and then, you know what, I, I counted commercials, by the way. Commercials just irritate me to death. I was watching this program, and there were, and I counted, eight minutes of commercial and ten minutes of movie. Okay, I'm, I'm off that. Okay, but I'm not grumbling, <laughs> because that would be the opposite of being long-suffering, so... Okay. Um, it is a question that we need to address. How do we deal with desires? Because desires are loud and they're insistent. They're like commercials. Our desires are not subtle. We might try to push them down, but they have a way of expressing them, both to us and to others. We would like not to blame or criticize, but it ends up coming out anyways. How can we soothe our desires? That's the question. We're going to say a couple things. I included in here some the thing we put together, the five steps to transformation. And we're going to talk about the first three because in order to wait perseveringly, which is what the Bible tells us to do, is something that you don't wait perseveringly by trying to wait perseveringly. You can't do it. You have to do some other things in order to wait perseveringly. And we're going to suggest three. Be real, be still, and breathe freely. Be real. Starts with being real. Look what it says in Hebrews 12. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, 
but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The book of James and Hebrews are addressing the same group, Jewish Christians who are trying to hold on to their hope, but their fingers are slipping. It was one thing to be a Christian in the early days in Jerusalem when everybody was selling their land as anyone had needs. It was a communal type of joyful existence. That was 15 to 20 years ago. And chronic persecution and and there were... Uh, Crops weren't working, and so their determination was eroding. The desires that they, they were able to suppress, well, I don't need to have money because I've got Jesus. Now the need for money is rising, and their capacity to hold on to Jesus is waning. This is the group that James and Hebrews are written to, they feel as though God has ceased to be involved with them. And we can't blame them. In the Old Testament, temporal needs eclipse eternal needs. And the way you know that God is with you in the Old Testament is, well, what did you do with Job? How did Job end up knowing that God was with him? He took some things away, but then what happened at the end? He got them all back. He got them all back. That's the way it is with the Old Testament. God's blessings are more tangible, land, seed, and blessing. The temporal blessings eclipse eternal ones. You don't get a real vision of eternity in the Old Testament. There's one or two faint, faint allusions. The fact is, in the Old Testament, people who walked with God were not thinking of heaven. They weren't. They were doing the right thing for this side of eternity. But now in the New Testament, what happens, the eternal blessings eclipse the temporal ones. Now, that might seem like a good deal, and it is, because eternity is important. But if you're used to seeing blessings manifest themselves in checkbook and prosperity, and when it doesn't happen, you start to wonder, don't you? You wonder, where are you? What happened? I read all these accounts of you blessing people, and I made a decision to follow you as best I could. And that's been 15 or 20 years, and I, I thought you were supposed to be coming back, but now my kids aren't any younger. Their jobs are not any better. It's difficult. Um, they feel abandoned, as if God has ceased to be active in their lives, and what the writer of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Endure hardship as discipline. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You know why he tells them no discipline seems pleasant? He's reminding them, be real. Be real. He says, all children are disciplined. No discipline is pleasant. If you don't undergo discipline, you're illegitimate children. So what he's trying to tell them? It's okay to admit that you don't like part of your life. It doesn't offend God. In fact, would you agree with me? I'm going to push the envelope a little bit. If everything in your life is pleasant, that doesn't bode well for you. It says every child is disciplined, and if you're not disciplined, then you're illegitimate children. 
in order to do what he needs to do in our lives, God does expose us to unmet needs and unfulfilled desires. They're painful. And it's okay to say, you know what, God, I don't like this. I don't like this. Now, we can be, and we'll talk about being respectful with God. I don't like cancer. I know you hold my hand in it, and I like that. I pray for Don, pray for Kari going through the same thing. And for, for them, it would be, I don't like this. I don't like what it does to my body. I don't like what it does to my family. I don't like what it does. But I know that you're going to walk. So there is that tension, isn't there? Holding on to both things. And there's a problem when we go through things. There's, we can err in one of two directions. It talks about making light or losing heart. When we make light of God's discipline. Well, you know what this reminds me of? It's when I, I got a little bit older, and my mother sometimes when she disciplined us, and again, discipline is child-rearing. It points to the future, and it's not punishment as much as it is. What discipline literally means, I think I've talked about this, it literally means to be with a child. And the purpose of discipline is future correct action, not past mistakes. You understand the difference? Punishment is about you did this and boy, you're going to pay. Discipline is I'm going to create a hard circumstance because I want you to do the right thing. That's what discipline is. Punishment is motivated by wrath. Discipline is motivated by love. And, um, you know, we're all disciplined and some of our discipline was more or less effective. We had my mother, we had five kids in the family, and we were angels. <laughs> uh, born angels. Every once in a while, you know, you just got to swat. You know, just you know, do something, bam. That's what I do. That's for what you were going to do. <laughs> so, you know, you get to the time. Yeah, you've done this. You've done this. You get to the time when you start to, you, you get old enough that you get whacked. And what do you do? Is that all you got? Oh, I just, ooh, some of you, that's a little bit too close, isn't it? You know, you know it, it's like, what, mosquitoes? Uh, making light. It's being ingenuine because the fact is that it hurts. Now, it doesn't hurt enough to make you cry, but even when you've grown up, yeah, hurts. Life can hurt. And some of us adopt that same kind of posture. That all you got? I can take that. Tough guys. And that's what it means to make light. You know what you do when you make light? You lose contact with the hurt of things. Sometimes we sanction that biblically. We think that God is upset when we don't love everything. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. You know it's sin number one? The sin that Jesus had a hard time dealing with what well, he said. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know what God wants from you? To tell the truth to him. And when you come to him, be thankful. But when you're going through things that are difficult, thank him 
But don't ignore God. I don't like this. He already knows it. So why do we think that pretending somehow appeals to him? He already knows what's in your heart. And, and so sometimes we go through things and then we say, oh God, thank you for the birds that sweet and sweetly sing. And, and so be thankful for the birds. That's fine. But also, don't be thankful for things that hurt. He already knows that they hurt. So, but sometimes we make light. Sometimes we lose heart. Remember one time we very appropriately disciplined our son Gavin. Very appropriately, I might add. And I remember he said, you hurt all my feelings. <laughs> uh, but sometimes that's, we act as if it's like life is gone and we, we can lose touch with hurt or sometimes we can lose touch with hope. Lose touch with hope. Make light, we lose touch with hurt. Lose heart, we lose touch with hope. And you know what we have to do? Hold on to both of them. Be real about the pain and be real about God's commitments and hold on to these and hold on to these and get through the day. Because you know what you're going to have to do tomorrow? You're going to have to hold on to these again, hold on to this again, and you can get through tomorrow. Tomorrow. That's the way, that's the way this thing is supposed to work. Being real involves being real about hurt and hope. And being real involves being real about blaming. Again, we have a spirit inside that envies intensely. And this is what it means, that you will have a natural tendency to blame yourself and or blame others. When we blame ourselves, we tend to go down into remorse. Remorse. Some of us have very difficult times with remorse. When we don't have what we want, we assume that we did something wrong and we turn in on ourselves. And we get very dark and somber inside. Some of you know that, and that's what some of us do. Others of us, it's not so much remorse. We don't turn the blame inward. We turn it outward. We grumble about others. We become resentful. We become resentful, and we point the finger out. Well, that's resentment. Remorse and resentment. Okay? How many of you are more on the... I'll ask you to kind of... More on the remorse side. How many of us... More than remorse side. How about resentment? Here's what, I know. Here's what I want you to know. You do deal with one of the two. And you might say, no, I don't. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Not admitting it is not being real. And that can be a problem. Because being able to be long-suffering begins with being real. Being real. Um, being real means to hold both hurt and hope. It's to resist hiding or hurling or huddling. The question is, how do we manage desires so that wanting doesn't become blaming? We get stuck in grumbling. How do we do that? It begins with being real, then moves on to being still. Moves on to being still. What it says, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. And encouraging the Thessalonians, God says, again, God is just. He will switch the price tags. When Jesus comes back, he will 
value that which is devalued now and devalue what is valued now. It might seem that bad people get away with good things or good people get away with bad things. It might seem that there's a lack of justice and this side of eternity there is. Not apparent. God is not invested in balancing the scales of justice now. And that's in the Bible. There's a number of writers who indicate, what are you doing? Don't you see what they're doing? Don't you see what I'm trying to do? And we feel abandoned. And what God does to us, he doesn't shush us. You know what he does say? Well, what does he want? Be long-suffering. But what about, don't grumble. Be real. God would say, talk to me. Talk to me. Be real about where you are. And then be still. Because God says, the sun is coming back and he will balance the scale and he will switch the price tags and everything will be evened out. You remember what it's the, the picture of justice, the, the scales that balance? The scales will balance. And that's what James is encouraging those individuals who are not getting justice then. He says that justice is on the way. Be still. Um, applying God's promises is difficult. We can think about God being just in the past. We can think of him being just in the future. You know what the problem is? You know what the toughest day to trust God is? What's the toughest day to trust God? What day? Today is the toughest day to trust God. Today is the toughest day to trust him. But God is like a river who flows out of our past and flows into our future. But a river that flows from the past to the future flows through the present. And what we're to do is apply our trust to the things we're dealing with and the things that discourage us today. Not just that you're going to do this in the great by and by. Look what it says, look what it says when Jesus, how Jesus handled injustice. First Peter two, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten. He didn't grumble. It would appear that he didn't do anything. You can't see him blame anyone. But he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Would you agree with me? that entrusting yourself to him who judges justly is not doing nothing? Would you agree with me? It's not that you fail to appeal a lack of justice. It's just that you don't appeal it to an earthly court. You appeal it to a heavenly court. You might not even say it out loud. But you're taking the hurt. You're holding the hurt. You're holding the hope. And you bring it before God. And you say, God, I don't like this. I don't like what happens here. I don't like what's going on there. And I appeal to you. I put this on your desk, at your seat. That's what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We need to speak about injustice. Sometimes out loud. Especially if we're advocating for someone else. But always before him. And he would have us do that. Entrust our situation to him who judges justly. You know what helps to be long-suffering, speaking it out. 
not complaining to a person necessarily. Now, there are times to speak about it. But be real and be still with him. Speak it out to him. He does want to hear. He already knows it's on your heart. And trust yourself to him who judges justly. Talk to him about the things that are happening. Respectfully. Hold on to the hurt. Hold on to the hope. And be with him. Honestly. And that will help you to wait perseveringly. Because it's very difficult to wait perseveringly when you are alone. Hard to wait when you're alone, isn't it? And when you cultivate an ability to be real with God, your sense of being alone becomes less. Your sense that he's with you becomes more because you're bringing more of yourself into the relationship. Some of us, we don't have a relationship with God because we're not honest with him. We only bring this much of ourselves to him because we're afraid he's offended if we tell him the truth. But what we're doing, most of us, is outside of a relationship with him. He loves you. Not just this nice part of you. He knows you thoroughly and loves you completely. Talk to him. Have a relationship with him. A real-ationship with him. Real-ationship. Not this fake plastic thing. It doesn't work when the chips are down. When you're going through difficult things that you have to be long-suffering about. Then reality is needed. Toughest day to have faith today. Talked about that. Be real, be still, breathe freely. This is really important. We've already started to talk about it. Some of us think that we need to kind of get God and we need to have God silence us. No, God doesn't want you to be silent. He wants you to breathe freely, to speak with him. He wants a relationship. Look what it says. Last verse, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about man, men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she is justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's the difference? What's the similarities between God and the unjust judge? When you're dealing with both of them, you have to wait. Justice waits. You have to wait to get justice from God. You have to get, wait to get justice from an unjust judge. That's the similarity. That's where the similarities end. What are the differences? The judge is somewhere in the house trying to block out this woman who keeps knocking at the door. Where is Jesus? He's at the door. He's not inside huddling. He's not, he doesn't have earphones on or earplugs trying to drown out the noise. He is at the door. Now, God the Father gives him the time when he comes, when everything switches. and he's, So he's not inside, he's outside. And the thing that's different as well 
is that the judge doesn't fear God or care about men. But the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's what he's like. You know what I heard once? And we're going to wrap this up. read a book, Prayer, by Old Halsby. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. That's a good statement, isn't it? Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. God is willing, but that doesn't mean that one knock and he comes right to the door and gives you everything you want. You're going to knock and you're going to keep knocking. And what he wants you to do is to keep knocking. When Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You know what he's saying? I wonder if anyone will be knocking. Why did they give up knocking? It's no use. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He does care. He's invested enough. He teaches us things. He calls us to be long-suffering. He tells us, don't give in to grumbling about people because that gets in the way of being long-suffering. It's not part of the equation. Um, how do we know that God cares? A table tells us. Here's what communion's about. I love it. I love the question, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I'm going to ask you a question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Is God holding out on you? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? Is God holding out on you? He can't be holding out on you, because if he was, he would never send his son. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he gives you the most valuable thing, he'll give you, he's willing to give you less valuable things. He gave you his son. He's not holding out. You keep knocking. He says, be long-suffering. Don't grumble. How do we do that? Be real. Be still. Breathe freely. Exhale your concerns to him and inhale his commitments to you and hold on to the hurt and hold on to the hope a day at a time and he'll get you through. He'll walk with you. Uh, we're going to experience communion as you come up. I want you to think about he, his commitments to you, even though he asked you to, to wait, to breathe, his commitments to you. He sent his son, shed his blood, body was broken to indicate to you that he's not holding out. So grab the elements sometime during the course of the song, drink the juice, eat the bread, and think about his care for you. Father, thankful that you're aware of the circumstances of our lives. It's not that you're unaware. It's not that you don't care. It's not why we're where we are. You do care. You hover above us like a mother eagle. You swoop down to catch us. You teach us to fly. Wings as eagles. You give us strength to be able to walk through the things that we walk through. Think of those who are dealing with physical things. 
I mean, I can't, but I even just cancer within our community, Don and Kari, Wendy and Christy. Give them what they need for the journey. We all have those issues. Continue to help us to learn to trust you. Hold on to the reality of the pain and the reality of the hope a day at a time. Thank you that you don't leave us alone. You don't abandon us. You will fulfill your purposes for us. And you will never leave and forsake us. Thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> How deep is that river? How deep is that river?